Hello, and welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines. People just like you working to understand viruses and how they affect you. While our podcast has focused on researchers involved in coronavirus or COVID-19 related research over the past year, moving forward, we will also be interviewing researchers studying other viruses so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackray, and I'm hosting this podcast from America's Heartland in St. Louis, Missouri. The use of oncolytic viruses to target tumors is a field with a long history. On February 9th, 2021, we talked with Dr. Sharmila Nair, a staff scientist in the Diamond Lab at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, about her work using Zika virus as a therapy for glioblastoma, a fatal human cancer. Sharmila received her PhD from the Technical University of Brandschweig in Germany, where she focused on understanding innate immune control of virus infection. In the Diamond Lab, she has continued to focus on the role of innate immunity during infection with a variety of pathogens, including flaviviruses, alphaviruses, and coronaviruses, as well as tuberculosis. Hi, Sharmila. Um, happy to have you with us today. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you become interested in virology research? I always inclined towards the biology field and had um, pursued my engineering in, um, uh, in biotechnology, which is it was an engineering degree, but towards biotechnology. And around that time, there was a epidemic that happened uh, in India, which is dengue. Dengue was a big problem. Um, at that time, and it went to a point that um, my university had shut down for a couple of days just to handle. Um, and you, you hear about all these infectious agents that roam around in India, but like this is the first time where things came to a standstill, at least for a couple of days at least. So that just, since I was in the field, just kind of piqued my interest, uh, started reading some papers about it. I had um, identified a few groups around the world um, in my limited reading capacity. Um, there were a few groups in Singapore, uh, in England, of course, some in the United States, many in the United States, um, and Australia. Prior to that, I had, you know, done some um, um, training abroad uh, during my vacation time. I had an internship opportunity when I went abroad. So I had, like, started to get into uh, learning the techniques of how to, you know, ask questions and answer questions and what experimental questions. And so I started like interacting with a few of these uh, PIs, at least whoever would reply back. Uh, <laughs> that's always a thing. <laughs> Not everybody does reply, uh, but a few of them did. I was very, very, um, um, it was very kind of them to take interest or, or take time to even reply to a, oh, how old was I, 18, 19 year old. Um, and then, um, uh, just started writing and then I started to think about doing a master's in virology in a dengue lab. So that's how it started. And then I'd moved abroad um, to, um, to England uh, in the group of Andrew Davidson. He does a lot of um, reverse genetics with dengue. Um, he's quite a known person in the dengue field and just started, started there basically. Okay, cool, cool. And had you had exposure to sort of biological sciences or microbiology earlier on, like in high school or before then? Not so not outside your textbook. So oh, let me think. No, so I don't think we did. I did much during my, uh, my, my school years. Um, 
I definitely started getting, so we really get, get to genetics and, you know, um, anatomy and basic biology only in your um, 11th and 12th. I don't know what the equivalent in the U.S. is, but yeah. it's 11th and 12th. Uh, and that always was amazing, like just genetics, Mendelian. I just remember being so excited by it. And I think that's something definitely that came naturally to me as well. Um, so I knew I wanted to... Um, I knew I wanted to pursue something in biology. Um, what was still to be determined? I knew I wanted to do engineering only for the reason that I knew I wanted to be able to go abroad and learn more. And I don't know this if you know this, but at least at that time, I don't know if it's the same case now, but you needed 16 years of education to be able to go for a higher education degree abroad. And I, in India, your um, basic BSc, which would be your um, uh, undergraduate degree would be a three-year course, whereas an engineering course is four. So I wanted to do engineering, but that was hard because the first couple of years you're doing, <laughs> you're doing all engineering. So there was a lot of physics and, and a lot of uh, electrical engineering and all of that that I had to do, but it was good. Not that I remember any of it now, but <laughs> that was, yeah. But yeah, so going back to the question, um, but during my college years, um, I definitely started looking for opportunities and uh, you know, creating opportunities for myself in some ways. So I had done a lot of internships, many of them in, um, in companies. Uh, I, um, I actually did a small internship um, in Dr. Reddy Laboratories, Bharat Biotech, you must have heard of that because I think one of the vaccines from our lab is now there, uh, being tested there. Um, then, and then I did a few other internships. Uh, and then I actually wrote to people uh, abroad uh, and then I got selected for this undergraduate research fellowship. I think that changed my eyes completely. So I went, moved abroad uh, for about three, I think it was three and a half months. Did some really nice, um, you know, it was a really nice exposure that I had. Came back and that's when the dengue epi uh, epidemic happened. And then um, and, and everything followed since then. Right. And so you mentioned that you went to England and didn't you also go to Germany as well? So was that afterwards? It was after. So in Europe, well, first and foremost, um, I, I had done my master's first. But in Europe in general, you'd need to have a master's degree uh, to uh, do your PhD. You can't do it directly from your bachelor's. In, in, I think in England it's different, but in Europe in general, you need a master's degree. So how did you, I guess, can you describe a little bit more detail? So how did you then get to sort of like your PhD and then your postdoc? What steps in a way did you go through? How did you identify those particular jobs? So the experience in England was really nice. Um, it, it got me, you know, working hands-on with certain molecular techniques. Um, it was very basic virology. And... It was interesting, but not interesting enough for me to pursue uh, my future. And so I started really thinking about what is it that I wanted to do um, in science. And two, at least at that time, the two parts that seemed pretty obvious to me was um, immunity to viruses or um, you know, going more towards the structure side and then thinking about drugs and how you can model and look at um, things that block and yada yada. Um, and I had actually, I was really interested in innate in immunity, just reading more about immunity. Innate immunity is just sort of like something that was really engaging me. Um, but 
regardless, I'd actually applied to programs across Europe at that time in both immunology programs as well as um, I think a couple of even the, the other programs which had more um, rotational programs in, in structural and immunology. So there was one, so I'd, I'd applied to a, a few, um, I can't remember, but I think there was one something called Erasmus program, which basically you hop between labs across Europe, almost like a rotation project and then decide what you like. Um, uh, but before I could get to that, I actually secured a position at the Helmholtz Institute of Infection Research. It was a really great place. It was a government funded. It's like the NIH in a way of Germany. And uh, the project was really interesting. And, um, and so I just joined there. And then how did you, once you had finished that, how did you then think about, you know, how to get your postdoc or where to go, what lab to get to? Yeah. Um, it, my, I would say that uh, the whole process is actually very simple-minded, I would say. Uh, I, so your PhD in, my PhD in Germany was actually really short. I finished the whole thing within three years. I published, I, I did everything. I think by the time I graduated, it was about three and a half years, but I pretty much was done in three years. Um, and then at that time, I had worked on neurotropic viruses, uh, innate immune responses to neurotropic viruses. And at that time, I was just looking at, okay, how much, I want to know more about immunity in the brain and potentially uh, just yeah, I, basically antiviral immunity at that time. And of course, Mike was a leader in that field. Um, I remember that uh, distinct nature medicine paper that had come up with, I think, Hylum's paper that had come out. And um, so I wrote to him and, and he was, of course, the first to reply, which is no surprise. <laughs> uh, got the response within seconds. <laughs> at 2 a.m. God knows how. Anyway, uh, so um, I, uh, uh, yeah, it just, it just worked well because he seemed responsive. I was responsive and it just felt like okay, yeah, this is someone that's engaging and, you know, it just happened from there and I secured a, a grant um, to move to the to the U.S. and so that was really nice actually um, to secure the grant and move to the U.S. and start my postdoctoral work here. Right, right. So um, I know you've actually worked on a couple of different aspects of virology and immunology in the Diamond Lab. Can you take us through some of them? And then in particular, I'd like you to talk about sort of the Zika virus answer stuff, but why don't we put that at the end? Why don't you talk about some of the projects you worked on before that? Right. So when I moved to the U.S., my goal was to investigate immune responses um, um, to infectious agents. So I really like virology and viruses and infectious agents, but I was actually more curious about what really took me was the immune responses aspect. So it, to some extent, I would use these infectious agents almost as a good tool to understand uh, the immune responses. Um, and all the infectious agents that I actually worked on were actually pretty endemic in where I grew up. So um, I've worked on um, um, flaviviruses. Um, of course, it's one of the heartlands of, uh, India is one of the heartlands of that. And then uh, TB, which is the curse in India, um, and um, chikungunya, which is also very, very prevalent. I mean, I, I mean, you, you know, I can tell you 10 people who have been infected by all of them. Um, um, you know, just that's just the sheer burden of where I grew up. So these were, 
I guess in, in hindsight, maybe I could like have streamlined a little bit more, but I was just so interested in science. And I'd also just done a PhD for three years um, that I just wanted to explore more and more and more. So anyway, so I uh, initially, um, I, when I secured the grant, my goal was to um, investigate um, the role of um, this particular gene called immune responsive gene one, which is involved, which is a, um, an uh, interferon stimulated gene, but it, uh, can, it's an en- it has an enzymatic uh, activity and decarboxylates um, a crucial uh, intermediate in the TCA cycle, in the, in the citric acid cycle, um, called cisaconitate um, to a metabolic product called itaconate. And what we found was this product, itaconate, has many um, um, immunological functions. So basically, it was this immune metabolic axis that this particular gene was modulating. And um, I tested this gene, um, the function of this gene against a bunch of viruses. But it really, what really stood out was its role in TB, which, and at that time, it just felt like this is something I had to do. Um, and so uh, I pursued that. And we found some really interesting data, um, which, uh, um, which we published um, almost two years back. Um, and then um, I was also involved in projects with chikungunya virus and, and um, um, antiviral roles um, in stromal cells. So when I, I I'm particularly interested in, um, you know, um, unique antiviral signatures in, in specific cell types. And what I had found was uh, the role of interferon regulatory factor one uh, in having a particular role in specifically muscle cells, but not other stromal cells in controlling viral replication, which is crucial because it's one of the major targets of replication for chikungunya. So uh, we published that too a couple of years ago. And, um, and then moving on, um, I started investigating um, the role of um, um, Zika virus in, um, in modulating, um, um, in basically trigger, in, in basically working as an oncolytic agent. And so there was, there have been studies which were published, which showed that um, um, you know, Zika causes microcephaly, uh, which basically the question arose was, why is it that Zika is not really infecting the adult brain, but it is easily um, infecting, um, you know, fetal brains. And one of the hypotheses was, well, there are a lot more stem cells in, 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 a, in a fetus as opposed to an adult. And this is something that subsequently was proven at least in, in the mouse model was that um, Zika can really, actually not in the mouse model, in actually um, in, in um, culture and in um, human um, biopsy samples that Zika can specifically target uh, to infect and kill um, neuronal stem cells, which is a big, uh, which is, which, which was later put uh, into a therapeutic use, at least that's the goal, um, because in many tumors there are cancer stem cells that are generated, especially in glioblastoma, which there is no treatment for today other than standard care. And even with that, your, um, your chance of survival is basically, your basic median um, lifespan is six to two years. And once you diagnose, death is pretty much inevitable 
even today. So the question of using Seeker as a therapeutic agent um, really came up and I was really happy to contribute to that story. So can you tell us a little bit more details about this? So I guess just a little bit of the backstory, like this whole idea of using viruses as an anti-cancer therapy, particularly mm-hmm. in the brain sort of has yeah. a long history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then also, I guess, some of your studies where now you're actually starting to look at what is the, once again, the immune component of that response. Right. Tell us a little bit about both of those. Yeah, so I think it's uh, it's it's interesting because uh, the earliest accounts I can find of um, using infectious agents for therapeutic purposes um, has been as has been dated as far as I think the 16th century, where people 16th or 18th century. I might be missing something there, but anyway, the point is people who had I think leukemia and also acquired herpes virus infections, um, they you know went into remission. Sh- temporarily and then of course it came back um, and then of course these people died but you know these things have been documented in history um, and I think in the beginning of the of the 20th century is when people really started doing a clinical trials and today you would question their ethical <laughs> the ethics behind those trials um, but uh, you know people started just throwing viruses like all viruses through west nile flu and herpes and i don't know and um just saw whatever sticks um and then in the 60s it went down again because i think you know a lot of the agencies for ethics and stuff really started coming up but um you know people have still followed through all the way to the 90s and it's really nice now because now that is an fda approved oncolytic virus um uh, which is herpes virus for the treatment of um um really advanced melanomas um so that has really um again you know given hope to people who are um in the oncolytic viral field to pursue and basically look at better um you know bigger, better, uh, more potent uh, um, uh, viruses that can specifically target, um, um, you know, tumors um, without much uh, toxicity to the humans. Right. So how does it work for Zika? So what is, when the Zika goes into the tumor, Mm -hmm. what is is your work shown? um, What is, what is happening essentially? So I think it's a two, it's a two-step thing. It's, it's doing two things. Um, and that's the, I think, the advantage of Zika over other viruses. Uh, one of it is that it's, it's, it's specifically targeting the stem cell population, which is the, uh, which is the population which, is, which causes most um, problems in resurgence. Um, it's that population that is very hard to irradiate. It's very hard to get, get rid of. And then what the second thing it's doing is it's actually evoking an immunological response, especially a CDA T cell response. Um, it's it's um, not only promoting um, you know better numbers to get recruited into the tumor, but also improving the functional uh, responses of uh, the CDA T cells against the tumor into the tumor. So I think it's a two thing. It's it's the, I think that's why it's superior. But of course. Um, um, you know, we need to do, it's a long road ahead before it starts uh, going into a therapy, um, right. in, a, in a therapeutic setting. Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. So I guess more generally, um, I guess um, I have a couple questions about, so what has been the ex- most exciting moment in your career so far? 
it's incremental for me too. Uh, if I find a day that's absolutely exciting, that will make my day for that, that moment. And then you move on and then you find the next thing. But also sometimes when you get sudden validations, like when you get some awards, you get grants, that makes me really happy because you, you, you know, you're doing something right in life. Um, um, uh, so, but I, I don't think I've had that Eureka moment. I mean, if I get a patent, which is out to the world and I make a million bucks, of course, that'll be the Eureka moment, but I don't think that's happening anytime soon. So <laughs> maybe my bar is too high. <laughs> um, so I guess then maybe conversely, what's been the most difficult thing you've had to overcome as a scientist so far and how did you overcome it? I think uh, um, it's, uh, I, I don't know if I've overcome it, let me just put up there, it's, it's a work in progress. <laughs> but um, it is, um, it is, it, it, it's, it's for me, for me, it's like the balance between passion of what you really like to do, but also um, staying on track to whatever defines your success path. Um, um, like, you know, when people say, do what you what you love the problem is i love too many things uh, <laughs> um i mean in science like i i really love immune responses to this but i also really like to investigate that and i mean if you're a pi maybe and with with a well-founded lab with multiple grants and that's something that you can do but i think as a postdoc um one has to be really mindful of your time and what your targets are. And although it feels like you're letting go of some things, maybe that is the case. You are letting go of some things and maybe you would have had better success there. And there's no way to know, did you try? But getting that balance right um, is important, um, I guess. Yeah. 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 Um, and then I guess if you had a chance to ask your older self, say you 60, 70, heading towards retirement, one question, what would it be? What would you want to know? I would ask, uh, what would I do differently in my 30s? Because <laughs> I'll do that now. <laughs> um, but I think, um, <laughs> seriously, I would, I, I would really do that if that, if, if that, would, if that was a possibility. But um, I think I would say, were the sacrifices worth it? I think that would be my major questions. Are you happy with your life and were the sacrifices worth it? Because, um, um, you know, I have left my family. Uh, I have left my family for the last 10 years. Not that I don't see them. I see them very often, but I miss home. I miss home a lot. So uh, it's, yeah. So I think I would, I would, I would just hope that I've been happy with my life, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess um, for this, obviously everyone's life has been changed in the last year due to the COVID pandemic. How has it affected you as an individual? What's changed? How has it affected you? To be honest, I cannot um, separate um, what's happened with the pandemic um, with the reality of my life in the sense that I am, I'm also a new mother. So it's been chaotic generally. And I really don't know how much of it is actually attributed by the pandemic. Um, so um, maybe some of it, maybe none of it, I really can't tell. Um, yeah, he, m my son is about 13 months old now. So he was just about three months when it was the height of the pandemic, which is pretty uh, chaotic time for me anyway. So yeah, um, yeah. I really can't tell. <laughs> so how have you dealt with things like childcare and 
safety. Um, you know, I think it's a different, you know, for a lot of our listeners, you know, it's one thing being an adult or, you know, dealing with your grandparents, but how do you deal with it as sort of a new parent? Yeah. So this was something, um, I stressed a lot about initially because initially the plan was my, my, my mom would come and help me for the six, first six months. And then we were fretting about what we were going to do. And, and I was really scared about sending him to daycare because I have, my, my kid was also born prematurely and uh, that was weighing in and causing a lot of stress in my life. And, and I mean, you know, thanks to my family, they really stepped up and, you know, Somebody, somebody else in my family just came and stayed with us um, for the remaining of uh, so after my mom left. So that really was a big relief. But I also realized that my situation is not the same as a lot of the other, you know, new mothers who had children around the pandemic time. And, you know, they've had to, you know, battle uh, these same questions and had made different decisions, but I really feel for all of them because um, it was not an easy decision easily. Yeah, so, and then I guess to follow up on that, so how do you make decisions about sort of, you know, going out for shopping or, you know, um, now, you know, I assume you've um, been offered the vaccine through WashU, you know, but your son's obviously not gonna be vaccinated for, you know, you know, hopefully, you know, this summer, this fall. So how, how has that sort of affected the way that you, you know, behave at work or in your community? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, we've definitely just reduced on everything, like going out in terms of like, we used to go shopping once a week, now we go once in two weeks, we just stock up more. Um, I've also started getting a lot of um, home delivery services. So I have a compostable service that comes home and picks up my trash, delivers bread and eggs. Um, I also have someone who comes and delivers milk. Um, so just things like that. So a lot of it has gone online. Um, and um, social life is, I would say, pretty much zero at the moment. <laughs> um, but um, I mean, I, I have seen friends here and there occasionally, people you, you know and trust and um, in very small settings, hopefully outdoors. I mean, in this winter, of course, it, it, things have to be indoor, but it has to be done, really thought through with people you know and are safe and, um, um, and, and you know, committed to being healthy and safe during this pandemic. Um, basically, just do your best. <laughs> That's about it. Yeah, yeah. And then, so what's next for you? So I, we were discussing earlier, you're looking for jobs. Um, yeah. What, what do you sort of envision for your, for your next step? Yes, yeah, so um, I'm trying to develop a research program of my own. Um, I'm really excited about that actually. Um, so I think my goal, at least for now, is to develop a program which looks at advantages, microbes and commensals um, um, in, you know, training your immune responses and preventing that pathology that you get from different diseases, be it tumor or an infectious agent, um, um, and just, you know, break down into projects, get grad students. I mean, that's a very far off hope. I'm just interviewing right now, but hopefully I get one and then I move. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for talking to us. Good luck. Thank you. Nice seeing you again. Sharmila hopes to establish her own lab soon, focusing initially on how adventitious and commensal microbes train host immunity and modulate pathology following infection. 
This has been Let's Meet the Virologist, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Thackray, and thanks for listening. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon Music, Spotify, and other podcasts, or at lmtv.podbean.com. If you are a virologist interested in sharing who you are and what you do, please contact us at letusmeetthevirologists at gmail.com.